Hello everyone and welcome to the first episode of season three of Ignite the Flame Audio. So glad to have you here. It's an honour and a privilege to have you with us here today. So glad you could join us. Of course, this is season three, but it's a little bit different. The book that we're reading to you is a completely separate novel. It has nothing to do with the previous seasons. So if you want to just jump straight in with season three, that's absolutely fine. I would encourage you to go back and check out season one and two. If you are interested, if you like what you hear from this particular book, you're more than welcome to go back to season one or two and check those books out. I would encourage you to go through season one first and then season two because the books are linked with each other chronologically. So that makes sense to do it that way. Basically breaking down the episode for those of you who are new to this series, we read a chapter to you. And then we go into a section known as the origin of ideas section where we break down the inspirations behind the chapter. Basically all the ideas that formed the chapter itself, almost like a director's cut of a film. Then we go into a section known as tips of the trade where we discuss, as it says, tips of the trade for those of you who are aspiring to be authors yourselves or just those of you who are already authors just looking for that little bit extra. Just a quick disclaimer, this book does contain reference towards high levels of graphic content in the sense of gore so I would advise your best discretion especially if you are a younger listener if you are below the age of 12 I would advise you not to consider this particular season because the graphic content is quite high and I wouldn't want to put you off future novels I also wouldn't want to give you nightmares so I would advise if you are below the age of 12 that you do not listen to season three and I would advise if you are an older individual who is listening to this particular podcast and you are around people that are below that age range I would advise you either pop your headphones in or use your best discretion you know make sure they're out of earshot so that they're not uh, influenced by the particular graphic content that's contained within this book okay I think that about sums it up so let's go ahead and get into it I'm Wayne Telford and I'll see you on the other side Welcome to Ignite the Flame Audio, where our hope is to bring people together one word at a time. Follow me, Wayne Telford, into the depths of your imagination. Abattoir Black Chapter 1 Waiting Watching Our story begins, much like many before it, with the sun lighting up the sky, seeping through the remnants of night, playing havoc with colour and density, and creating all manner of iridescence. The sound of birds in the distance, calling to their young, urging them to fledge and begin this life which they had yet to experience, a life of purity, of survival, and natural law. One which is governed by man, but for how much longer? Miles away upon a hill, within Wraith's Creek, the sound of commotion fills the air. Photograph flashes litter the scene as chaos emanates from the surrounding onlookers, bracing one another and struggling to comprehend that which, to others, was so clear a young girl had been reported missing. Her parents worried about her safety. Days passed with not a sign of life or even a trail to follow, except for a form deep in the woods, restricted by fence and wire, by blood-stained wood and outward-facing stakes, as if to barricade against outsiders, or perhaps to keep something in. The girl's body was found in quite a state. She had been buried alive and at least partly consumed. But to what end? It was unclear. 
for the marks resembled something inhuman. No fingerprints were ever found, and there were no leads to any person who could have done this. The farm was all but empty except for a lone owl that always seemed to roost in the barn's uppermost cavity. A silo to the east, and the house in its centre, were all the remain of the ones who once dwelt here. But, as we journey to the centre of this grand nation, the smog of the city welcomes me, as I glance upon Scotland Yard to begin our twisted tale. This case is over ten years old. Why in the world would you want to reopen it? asks the chief inspector. It was never solved, was it? No murderer was ever found. No peace of mind for the parents' sake. Don't we owe them that? Remarks a young officer. Look, I realise that you are new here, but you will take years to learn the tricks of the trade, and even longer to reveal things that others cannot see. Besides, it's too far away. Do yourself a favour, will you? Let this case go, and pursue another one. It seems that murder is your calling, otherwise we wouldn't have requested your transfer here, reveals the inspector. Look, Chief Inspector Miles, I appreciate you accepting my transfer, but my father worked this case, and he came to no resolution. Shortly after that, he disappeared off the face of the planet, leaving me and my mother to fend for ourselves. And you believe, Officer Raymond, that in solving this case you may find your father? He's been missing for ten years, much like this girl, and like her, he vanished without a trace of evidence or anything leading to his trail. Which is half the reason Chief Inspector Miles tries to continue. Yes, I am well aware, Chief Inspector. If my father is found, he will be apprehended for being the chief suspect in this investigation. But until such time, I would like to be permitted a chance to redeem my family name. Understood. Raymond insists. Very well, officer. On your head be it. Just know this. Many good policemen have buried themselves in cases like this one, and after finding nothing, could not return to active duty. All I ask is that you don't end up being the same, warns Miles. I assure you, sir, I am quite content with what I find. No matter what the verdict is, Raymond assures him. I hope so, officer because any case that involves that farm, Rafe's Creek, is sure to test your worth, as a police officer and as a human being, Miles adds. Meaning what exactly, sir? asks Raymond. Well, some say that the farmland is haunted. Now whether it's ghosts, schools or just a mad criminal, I don't know. All I do know is that in the past year, several cases have been reported for missing persons, and every one of them has involved that farm, continued Miles. Why send the cases here to London? inquired Raymond. No one knows. Brought to us by unknown hands, it would seem, admitted Miles. All the more reason to investigate then, sir, don't you think? With a nod of consent from Chief Inspector Miles, Officer Charles Raymond sprang to his feet, wrestled past all his colleagues to do that which he had quested the entirety of his life for. Edging towards the unknown, he opened the door to his police car, with its pre-war appearance and black-on-white coloration. He took a commanding position at the steering wheel, clutching it with purpose, and coaxed the engine to life with provocative intent. The tires screeched on the tarmac, and the vehicle moved toward the outskirts of the town. 
towards Wraith's Creek. Winding roads leading atop a valley, carved by nature, were filled with a series of oak and beech woodlands where only the mind could wander freely, lest all else become lost in its dark and weary contents. By nightfall, it is almost impossible to navigate, and during the day there is not much improvement. Yet his vehicle rages on at breakneck speed, coursing through the twists and turns, racing toward a destiny longing to be revealed. Suddenly, the police car jerked and shifted direction, diverging to the left, and it began to head down a country lane, toward an open area of woodland where it is said residents of Wraith's Creek resided. A series of small houses, surrounded by quaint little fences, only added to the already natural appearance. Their silver varnish, accompanied by the pure white bark of beech used in their furnishing. The small encampment consisted of several families. The Morrison family, Eustace, Mildred, and Tucker, their only child. The Timsbury family, Jim and Moira, and the Ottoman family. Old Clive, Andrew, Daphne, and Billy, with their young companion, Samson. These were quiet people, who paid attention more to their own rather than to deal in business that was not of interest. Alas, this day would be different, and gain much attention. For this officer had quite the reputation, and these families saw an opportunity not only to meet a new acquaintance, but to ensure that they were all the centre of idle chit-chat. News travelled fast in a backwater town such as this, and the arrival of a new policeman was enough to arouse suspicion in even the most reclusive of residents. The police car slowed, and Officer Raymond takes his first steps into the newest of territory, with only the sounds of the woods and the wind caressing the tree's foliage. As he enters, all is quiet and serene for the moment. In the distance, a gathering of people starts to rise as they make their way toward him. Reluctantly, Officer Raymond steps forward. Afternoon all. I'm aware this is highly irregular, but I'm conducting a police investigation into the disappearance of a young girl by the name of Elizabeth Raines. Any information from any of you would be most appreciated, including where she was found and who she may have been in contact with. I realize that it was a long time ago, says Raymond. Officer, it's been a long time, but little has happened since. Our memories, I assure you. I've not recovered from the disappearance of that poor little girl, one of the residents admits. Well, as I said before, any information that you have would prove useful in this case. He introduces himself. I am Officer Raymond, and you all are? I'm Eustace, and this is my wife, Mildred. This is our only son, Tucker. A pleasure to meet you all, I'm sure. Raymond responds. Jim, and Moira Timesbury. At your service. Charmed. Raymond adds, I'm Clive, and this is Andrew, Daphne, and Billy. And somewhere around here is Samson. But where exactly? Only God knows. Raymond asks, Do you often allow your children to roam unaccompanied? Well, how can they learn about the world that they live in unless they explore it and deal with danger themselves? Plus, the fact is, he's 23 years of age says Clive. Was Elizabeth Raines exposed to such a danger as well? asks Raymond. We all warned her plenty of times not to visit that cursed farm in the midst of the woods, and no matter how many times we told her, 
She insisted on returning there. Time after time, eventually, she stopped coming back. Her parents worried for days, searching that wretched land for her, from top to bottom, and they found nothing. Several days later, they found her lying on the ground, half-eaten and otherwise buried. Eustace recalls. Yes, I am aware of the report. The part that was eaten was ascribed to have been passing crows, as they can be the only culprits for such a massacre of one's lower appendages, unless it was wild foxes. Some cases have been known to happen before in times of want, Raymond suggested. Daphne Ottoman replies, Officer, if you will pardon our bluntness, it was no accident that she was killed, but it certainly was animal in nature. As to her lower remains being consumed... What do you mean, Miss Ottoman? Raymond inquired. I mean, officer, that the farm is not empty, and it certainly wasn't a human who took her young life, Daphne continued. Oh, shut up, Daphne, with your tall tales of haunted farms and superstitious stories of animal spirits, Clive rants. Shut your mouth, Clive. I know what you saw and what I saw, Daphne defended herself. Exactly. Two totally different things, says Clive. I saw a bunch of moss attached to a pillar, and she sees a ghost moving in the wind. Ha! A likely tale, belittling Daphne. Officer Raymond interjects. Well, despite superstition, I am here to investigate the facts, and I will only accept so much. Now, I highly doubt that a ghost is responsible for Miss Rain's death, but I will visit this farmland at some point. So, stay in town as I may have further need of you all. As I don't know the land, would anyone care to accompany me? Asks Raymond. I will, sir. This way. This way. Offers Samson. Samson, get back here! Billy yells. Let him go, Billy. The boy is as excited as a school child, and I'm sure that Officer Raymond won't mind keeping an eye on him. Will you? Asks Andrew Ottoman relieving himself of any responsibility. My pleasure, Andrew. My pleasure. Officer Raymond answers. With a look of determination crossing his face, he turns his body in the direction of the farm, pursuing the boy as though a predator after its quarry. Raymond says, Slow down, young Samson. I don't know these woodlands as well as you do, and I'm likely to become lost. Each crack and snap of a branch, or a twig, alerts the woodland to Officer Raymond's presence, disturbing the peace and the tranquility, whilst maintaining a sense of alertness about him. This way, sir, this way! Samson shouts from afar, almost causing Officer Raymond to jump in surprise and to laugh in fear, over that which he had no need of. Here we are, sir, the outermost gates! Samson points. How well do you know this area, young Samson? Raymond asks, following him. As well as you know your clothes, sir, Samson replies. I see. And did you know Elizabeth Raines? Samson? Raymond asks. Yes, sir. We would often play together here at Farmland, during our younger years, that is. But one day I invited her up here, and she didn't come back. I looked everywhere for her, and found nothing. But then... Oh, I saw something awful, sir. Samson reveals. You found her in the mud? Raymond asks. No, sir. I saw what happened to her, 
every detail, but if I told you, you would laugh like all the others, Samson exclaims. Not if it was the truth, Samson. I implore you to think back and tell me what happened that day. Raymond coaxes him. Well, sir, I don't know exactly what I saw. It was dusk and way past home time. I rushed back and I heard Elizabeth scream. I turned around and came back. I saw her being dragged into the barn and I heard awful noises, grunting and mooing, as though the animals were scared by her. But then I heard something else. A cutting noise and something leaking. I thought it might have been a drain pipe. After opening the barn door ever so slightly, I saw the animals all gathered around her, as though they had witnessed it happen. I don't know who did it. I think there was an accident. But being dragged in by something, that was no accident, sir, Samson recalls. Well, Samson, I don't know what you saw that night, but I intend to find out. Much like my father before me, I want to see this case resolved once and for all. But for that, I may need your help. Raymond confides to the boy. You mean, you believe me? Samson asks, amazed. Well, you may not know who actually did it, but what you saw is definitely valuable, young Samson. Now show me where you found Elizabeth. Raymond asks him. This way, sir. This way. After clambering over the blood-red fence posts and dodging reels of barbed wire, Officer Raymond and young Samson attempted to find where poor Elizabeth had been found. But as Officer Raymond was about to discover, all was not as it seemed, and little Elizabeth might not have been the only one claimed by that hallowed ground. Nearing the fields, they both took up crouched positions in expectancy and proceeded further into the allure of their surroundings. Samson? Raymond asks. Yes, sir. How long have you known of this place? Raymond asks him. Several years, sir, but it has been here for hundreds of years. Well, at least that's what Clive and the Morrisons say, Samson answers. And how long has it been deserted for? Raymond probes. I'm not sure, but people have been going missing for a long time, even when Clive was a child, or... So he says, continues Samson. How old is Clive? Fifty-two. I think, replies Samson. Some years indeed, says Raymond. As Officer Raymond ponders the expanse of this neglect, he turns his head and admires the woodland view, only to be drawn back to the gaze at the barn, mesmerized by its wind-induced instruments. Are we close, Samson? Raymond asks. Yeah, sir, right there is where she was. I remember it, as though it were yesterday. Samson reveals, traumatized. Yes, I know it must have been very traumatic for you. Think of how she was lying. Facing us, or facing in another direction? Raymond asks. She was facing away from us, toward the woodland, Samson remarks. The legions of oak and beech stood aside a pathway, hollowed into the overgrown heather and brambles. I see. So she could have been attacked from behind and dragged toward the barn? Raymond inquires. Possibly, but what stopped them from carrying her inside? Samson asks. I'm not sure. Perhaps you startled them. Raymond suggested. Not likely, sir. And she was half buried when I found her, describes Samson. Surely you called her name? Raymond coaxes. Once or twice, sir, Samson answers. Well then, that would have alerted them to your presence. Raymond confirms. Yes, sir. 
But don't you remember, I saw her in the barn and I heard screams, Samson recalls. So, she was buried after you had discovered her? How long was it before you returned here? Raymond inquires, starting to become confused. Several days, sir. I was so scared that I did not leave the house. Let alone venture out here, Samson said. So why return now? Raymond asks. I returned a few weeks back, sir, Samson admits. But this case is ten years old, isn't it? Raymond states. Well then, sir, time must be passing by fast, as I've only visited on a few occasions after that day, replies Samson, confusing Raymond further. How long was it until you found Elizabeth's body exactly? Raymond attempts to clarify this. The next day, sir. I was scared, but I had to know what happened to her. Understandable. And then? Raymond pursues. I didn't return for another five years at least, sir. Samson concludes. Your stories appear very confused, Samson. Raymond declares. Yes, sir. My apologies. The, the trauma, it plays tricks with my mind, I suppose. Samson attempts to explain. I see. And were the authorities involved at all? Raymond asks. Oh, yes, sir. A few days after I found her, it was all over the newspapers. Samson reveals. And what did they conclude? Raymond asks. That it was an animal attack. But they couldn't tell whether it was a wild or a tame animal. Samson replies. Tame? Questioned Raymond. Yeah, sometimes dogs have been known to attack small children. Samson offers. Yes, but to devour them as well? Raymond asks. Surprised. Natural instincts would kick in, I suppose. Samson comments. And what about someone being the killer? Raymond queries. All were questioned and no evidence was found. Samson admits. Well, we'll see about that. Are you sure this is the place? Raymond asks. Absolutely. Samson confirms. Very well, then. The ground is reddish clay with a brown overlay. It is much different from how it was then. Raymond attempts to prove otherwise. No, sir. In fact, it is almost exactly the same, as if time stood still here. Samson eerily mutters. Indeed, the report says that her face was severely damaged, beyond recognition, with multiple fractures to the skull, broken ribs, lacerations to the torso and arms, with the lower body severed and eaten. Raymond reads from the report. No, don't stop! Samson writhes. I apologize, Samson, but I must find the truth no matter how traumatic it is. After a few moments of heightened respiratory activity, Samson calms himself and continues in aiding Raymond. The lower torso was eaten? Raymond asks. Yeah, that is correct, but only bone fragments were found. Nothing which could say clearly that it was Elizabeth's, Samson states. If not Elizabeth, then to whom did they belong to? Raymond ponders. As I said, sir, a lot of people have been reported missing in Wraith's Creek. The sky had blackened, and rain began to fall, washing the clay into a pool of bloody water and semi-drowning Officer Raymond and Samson. They both ran for shelter and chose the barn to try and stay dry. Failing to get further answers, Raymond asks, Is this the barn where you witnessed everything? Yes, sir, Samson confirms. Tell me exactly where you were in relation to her, Raymond queries. I was over here, sir, by the door. On the other side, in fact, looking in, Samson replies. Where was she? 
Raymond asks, trying to understand. Over there, hanging up, exclaims Samson, pointing toward the centre of the barn where a lone hook dangled. Its head was attached to a mighty chain, forged from solid steel and strong enough to hoist a large weight. Hanging up? Raymond murmurs. Yes, sir. She was dangling there, and the chain was here. He placed his hand on the top of Officer Raymond's back, just between the shoulder blades. I see. And the animals? Raymond asks. Gathered around her. Here. All around here. Slowly scuffing a circle with his foot into the grain-infused ground and attempting to recreate the scene. And what signs were there of human intervention? Raymond continues. Only the lever, sir. It was down when I saw it. But as you can see, it is up now. Samson comments. Very well, let's see what it does. Raymond suggested. I'll be surprised if it still works, sir. Samson commented. As Raymond pulls the lever, the chain jerks and kinks, wrenching, swinging, and catching Raymond's arm as it swings upward, leaving behind a small yet significant wound. Oh, are you all right, sir? Samson proclaims. Ah, yes, Samson, just a scratch is all. Nothing which can't heal under the right circumstances, said Raymond, favouring his arm in an attempt to conceal the pain that now tormented his every twitch, muscle, and vein, all adding to the throbbing sensation that travelled northward throughout his being. Now tell me, Samson, did anyone dust this for fingerprints? Raymond asked. I don't know, sir. M maybe, Samson said. Let's see what we can see, shall we? Officer Raymond reaches for an ultraviolet light emitter and shines it onto the neck of the lever. It glows with a high visible blue radiance, the likes of which can only be described as fantasy. Wow, sir, how did you do that? Samson said, enviously. Well, you see, young Samson, if blood is present, it shines blue when it's exposed to ultraviolet light, and this emitter does just that. However, it isn't fascinating. It's quite horrific. Raymond states. Oh, so? Samson asks. Whoever operated this lever was immersed in blood, as the lever is almost covered in it. See here? Says Officer Raymond. As he leans his emitter further towards the eastern side of the lever, the trail continues from the dials and devices, and leads toward the centre of the barn, with only flecks left behind, as a reminder of the darkness which had transpired. And here... See the glowing blue flecks? Raymond points out. Yes, sir, but surely there would be more. Like on the lever, Samson says, trying to understand. On the contrary, blood on the ground is much easier to discover than blood on the lever, Raymond explains. I suppose so, but how can it still be there? Surely they would have thought to wash it off, Samson asks. In these particular situations, young Samson, I don't believe that a lot of thinking takes place, especially in the mind of the murderer. Raymond continues. Yeah, I guess. But would you say that someone did this on purpose? Says Samson, as Raymond steps down onto the ground. Well, it was no accident concerning what or who was here ten years ago. He replies. Well, me and my family, of course. The Morrisons, the Ottomans the Rains family, and Officer Chaplin, Samson replies. Officer Chaplin? Raymond queries. Yeah, an old man, even then. He was the one doing all the investigating, 
and he wrote up that report that you have there, says Samson, once again pointing to the file under Officer Raymond's arms that was now wet with sagging edges and threatening to erase the fine detail collected all those years ago. This is my father's report. Officer Chaplin must have aided him in this investigation. And where would I find this Officer Chaplin? Raymond asks. Down at the station house. That is, if he's still there. Folks say that he wasn't the same after the case. It shook him to his core, Samson warns. I may require some assistance. Raymond replies. I'll go and get him for you. Before Officer Raymond can yell for Samson to stop, he bolts out of the barn and into the harsh embrace of the falling rain, with patters of water hitting every surface, completely submerging the first layer of ground in a translucent mirror, ripples echoing every droplet as they slowly drift apart. Young Samson was fading into the distance, becoming more waterbound as time went on, and all manner of sound was cancelled out within the blasts of the thunderous shower. Well, it appears as if I am alone in this endeavour, thought Officer Raymond, as he turns toward the scene in an attempt to revive what little evidence remained. The flecks now concentrated, reflected back at him through the haze of sawdust and gravel. It lined the floor, with only the emitter providing visibility. The trail appears unidirectional, with flecks tapering in droplets toward the centre of the barn, meaning that young Elizabeth was hung here, and then the lever was pulled. But why? thought Officer Raymond, crouching and placing his hand on the ground as he looks upward into the rafters of the barn, trying to hypothesize the scenario as it unfolded before him. Elizabeth running, frightened by her attacker, succumbing and falling to the ground after several steps, then being dragged toward the centre and hung onto the hook, with its point wrenching through her spinal column, severing all feeling as she dies, her paralysed corpse being slowly raised heavenward, the murderer pulling the lever with blood-stained hands and stopping every few metres as the chain jerked and struggled to rise, kinking and getting entangled amongst the mechanism above. But how would you pull the lever with so little power? Where is the generator? thinks Officer Raymond, as he leans out of the window panel and observes the now scattered spats giving way to sunlight. The remnants of the storm was passing into the hills as a fading tormentor. Well, let's go and see, shall we? He says to himself. He was commenting on his actions to give the impression that he was being observed. Little did he know. Officer Raymond leaves the barn, using the rear door, and walks toward the bottom of the paddock behind the barn. Shacks litter its outer edges with debris, timber and metal shards alike, tainting this once beautiful landscape, showing all to be in need of serious repair. There was a terrible smell, so strong and pungent that it filled Raymond's mouth and gave him a facial expression of distortion and disgust. He almost vomited onto the floor, almost heaving up his last meal. Oh, dear, what is that horrific stench? It smells like, thought Raymond, and with a picture of shock and disbelief, his mind is cast back to ancient times, when the bodies of the dead would be amassed in piles, surrounding temples of worship as compost for the once diverse landscape. Following the scent, Officer Raymond stumbles upon a grain silo, and as he nears its jagged maw, he hears the hinges of the door buckling under the sheer weight of disused animal feed. Or so he thinks. 
The door suddenly bursts open, and all manner of blood-infused water spills out with human entrails and body segments now completely covering the surrounding area up to 15 meters in diameter. The silo has emptied its contents, and Officer Raymond wades through the gore and guts in an attempt to slam it shut, to try and prevent any further spilling. Despite its grim appearance, it was evidence to a series of murders far surpassing that of young Elizabeth. The culprit for this massacre was still unknown at that point, but it became abundantly clear that this killer was not after a single person, but rather sought to eliminate all who set foot on the farmland. Perhaps whatever started all of it is involved with many more deaths. And welcome to the Origin of Ideas section of this podcast. Basically, this is the section of the podcast where we take the chapter that's just been read to you and break it down, giving you the ideas that were instrumental in the formation of this chapter and the inspirations behind them. So getting started off, we see that we're introduced to the characters in a different way. During this chapter, the characters, instead of being introduced during the actual text, they're introduced via the dialogue. And this is just another way that you, as a writer, can introduce those characters. What you can do is you can introduce them by name, having two characters interact with one another. As they're talking to one another, you can introduce them through that dialogue, as opposed to just saying, this character is called this, and this character is called that. It's just another way that you can use dialogue to introduce your characters, and it just helps to change it up every now and then between books. The second point is we notice that Throughout the chapter, it's building mystique around a particular place. In this case, Wraith's Creek. So what you do when you're building up mystique about an area is that you're you're creating intrigue. You're causing the reader to become inquisitive. You know, they want to know more about this place. What is this place? You've given a name, but not much else. You know, why are these people here? What's the mystery surrounding it? You know, we introduce you as the reader or the listener to the concept of there's a missing girl. But we're also told later on in the chapter that she's not the only one, that there's more cases of missing persons. And that helps to build this mystique around this particular area. And when writing, especially when you're writing thrillers, as in this case, building mystique around the area where your book is set almost acts as a second draw for the reader to make sure that they're continually hooked. And if you can maintain that mystique as long as possible, then it ensures that the reader will continue to be interested, at least for the most part of your book, until those mysteries are revealed. The third point is we're introduced to a rural community. Now, usually in thrillers, rural communities, we see it in horrors as well, specifically in the works of H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth, is you can utilize a rural community as in they're quite close-knit. They keep themselves to themselves. They don't get caught up in what's happening around them. So they can come across as quite isolated, quite cut off from the rest of the world. Some of the residents might seem a little bit more sort of old-fashioned or they won't be aware of world events. And you can utilize this to sort of create an almost alien landscape or an environment where your protagonist might be entering and they might feel like a complete stranger despite this town or whatever setting you have only being on the doorstep and it's an interesting way that you can create parallels between environments despite them being quite close to one another that then leads on to point four which is the use of the uncanny 
So what I mean by uncanny is that something feels off, even though everything seems normal. There's just slight feelings of like something's not quite right. You know, you know how you go into a place and you'll just get this feeling. You'll just be like, something doesn't feel right here. Something happened here or I'm not comfortable. I'm not comfortable in this place. And by creating this feeling of the uncanny, what you do is you automatically isolate that particular environment and it sets up the feelings that you're going to then focus on later on in the story. So creating an uncanny environment basically puts the protagonist and the reader or listener on edge, like as soon as the book starts, which is really good to use in thrillers and in horror as well, because it sort of puts them on edge as soon as you start. So from the first chapter, we notice that as Officer Raymond is interacting with the characters, there seems to be something off-putting by them. They seem to be conversing with him, but some of them are sort of slowed, almost. Almost as if time is moving a lot slower. You know, Samson mentions that it's almost as if time stops here. You know, so there's this creation of the uncanny. It's almost like the laws of nature don't take place here. And it just helps to set up that eerie sort of feeling about this place, that this place is alien. You know, it's not the usual place that you would come to. And it just helps to build, as I mentioned in point three, it helps to build that mystique around the area and creating the sense of uncanny. It also puts the reader or the listener on edge so they feel compelled to read but it also sets up for future plot points that you would otherwise have for the story. The final point is we have this contrast of themes where you have logic versus the unfamiliar. Now, this is what I meant by future points built up by the uncanny. When you know that something doesn't feel right, you try to find a logical explanation. You know, so if you get a shiver down your spine, it's like, oh, okay, you know, the temperature's changed. Or if you feel that something isn't quite right about a certain person, you think, okay, well, it might be because they're quite asocial. They're not used to, you know, having human interaction. Maybe they're just a bit off. What can happen is through these stories, whether it's a thriller, whether it's a horror, you can have this rationalized protagonist, as we usually see, have to face the unfamiliar. So the logic which they build their life around comes under threat. And they find themselves questioning the nature of reality itself. Now, we see this most prevalently in the works of H.P. Lovecraft. We have a detective or a journalist, some private investigator, who goes into the story and their idea of reality is challenged. And by the end of the story, they've either gone completely mad or their eyes have been completely opened to a completely new dimension or new realm that they otherwise never knew existed beforehand. Now, whilst you don't have to necessarily go to that extreme, you can, especially if you're introducing the supernatural or anything that's unfamiliar, you can have this rationalized protagonist, which is trying so desperately to understand things logically and to explain things logically. But as in the case with life, there are so many different things that we have yet to explain by logical means. There just isn't an explanation yet. So utilize that because that puts your protagonist on edge which therefore puts your reader or your listener on edge. And all of these different tools help to continue to build that suspense. It continues to unsettle the reader, unsettle the listener, which gives this this desire to want to continue the book because they want to know what happens. They're frightened, maybe intimidated. They know that something's not quite right. 
but that natural curiosity then takes over and they want to then read further into your book. So especially with thrillers and horrors, I would recommend using these tools like we have in the first chapter to sort of not just set the scene, but to set the tone for the rest of your novel. Okay, that about wraps up for this section. Let's go ahead and get into the next one. And welcome to the tips of the trade section of this podcast. Basically, this is the section of the podcast where, as it says, we discuss tips of the trade, where we just give tips to those of you who are aspiring to be authors or those of you who are authors already just looking for that little bit extra. So today I thought we would start season three off discussing the power of writing and the influence you can have on your readers. Now, the best way to demonstrate this is with a quote from Uncle Ben, which is a character from the Spider-Man comics, who mentions, with great power comes great responsibility. Now, as writers, we have the ability to raise awareness to specific themes and to encourage and even persuade people to get on board with those themes. And we can even influence and perhaps even change people's minds or opinions based on the power that we utilize. With that, comes a lot of responsibility. Of course, throughout our works and through the majority of works, people will encourage humanity in general. They'll encourage you to be generous. They'll encourage you to keep fighting, never give up. You know, the under, the classic underdog story of you can defeat anything if you set your mind to it. You can do anything. You can accomplish anything. But there are other stories that also raise awareness, not just nonfiction, but fiction as well that raise awareness to certain themes. Certainly in our own works, we go about raising awareness to particular needs that would otherwise not get a lot of attention. So for instance, we encourage people to draw their attention to specific needs in the world. So things like poverty and the water crisis, uh, political issues, uh, the justice system, these sorts of different things. It just helps to raise awareness and it just helps to sort of draw the reader's attention to certain themes that you might feel passionate about. And I would encourage you to do that. You know, if you feel passionate about a particular topic that you think deserves attention and in so doing it would raise awareness and better us as a species I would definitely encourage you to do that you know if you feel particularly passionate like for instance we try to raise awareness about mental health issues we try to raise awareness about obviously racial equality or all forms of equality for that matter whether it's gender whether it's sexuality whether it's creed or race all these different sorts of themes I would definitely encourage you to inspire them about your readers. You know, encourage these themes that would otherwise bring us together, that would unify us as a human race. Obviously, the flip side of that are obviously themes that I would otherwise stay away from. You know, if I'm going to be honest, there are works out there that would encourage people to do the complete polar opposite. And if you should come across those works or if you hold those particular opinions, I would like to think you don't. But if you hold those particular opinions... I would encourage you to keep them to yourself if you're not willing to change those opinions. Because in my own personal opinion, those kind of archaic belief systems don't belong in our modern society. So if you are trying to encourage disunity, if you're trying to encourage people to break the law, if you're encouraging people to hurt themselves or to bring hurt to others, if you're encouraging extremism or forcing a belief system onto someone who otherwise is unwilling to accept it, 
I would encourage you to keep those opinions to yourself and not to encourage them in your work. And if you do come across works that do that, I, I wouldn't give them the time of day, to be quite honest. You know, there are too many works in our world, unfortunately, that encourage themes of disunity that are based on ideologies which people genuinely think that they are well-intentioned, but all they're causing is for us to be pulled apart. And that's obviously the case where being irresponsible with the power that we have can obviously cause things to go wrong. So I would encourage, when you are writing, be very self-aware. Be very conscious of how your work is going to influence the people around you. And should you wish to draw attention to themes, should it be passionate to you? And should you know that it is encouraging people to be better, encouraging them to be better to themselves and better to other people? If you're encouraging people to be more humane, if you're encouraging equality, if you're encouraging generosity, if you're encouraging all these themes that would otherwise improve the human race then I would encourage you to go for it. If you have the opposite opinions and you are not willing to change those opinions, I would advise that you keep them to yourself because those kind of belief systems belong in the past. They do not belong in today's modern society, in my opinion. And spreading those toxic beliefs is just degrading the human race. Whether you believe that your ideology is well-intentioned or not, it has a negative effect on humanity. And so I would encourage, if you are not willing to change your opinions, open your eyes to the reality that human beings can be better. And we, as writers, as creative people, can improve the human race. If you are not willing to contribute to that, then I would advise very strongly that you keep your opinions to yourself. Getting back on the lighter side, obviously we have the power and the ability to raise awareness about these particular topics, but also there's the hope that it will reach the right people as well. This is a way by which we can raise awareness without necessarily tarnishing your reputation, but you can reach the highest people. So you could have a politician or someone in power, someone in the legal system, pick up your book or listen to your podcast, and they could be touched by your work, and they could really have their hearts and minds changed by your work. And I would encourage that if you feel passionate about something that you feel needs more awareness that is going to improve us as a species, as people, I would encourage you to put that forward, to voice your opinion so that you can be heard. And who knows, you might even change the world for the better. And I would fully encourage you to do that because together we can make the world a better place. We can improve human society and the flaws that the human race does have, we can help to erase them, to make us better to each other, to ourselves. We can get rid of these archaic systems like racism and inequality, prejudice, all these fears that we have that leads to acts of violence and war and attrition. We can help to slow that process and maybe even get rid of it entirely. And as a creative person, I would love to encourage you to get on board with that, to utilize your power responsibly so that we can bring that day closer. Okay, that about sums it up for this section. And that about wraps it up for episode one. Thank you guys for tuning in. It really means the world to us that you would take time out of your otherwise busy schedule to make us a part of it. Of course, we'll endeavor to include all of the links below 
to any of the information that's been mentioned during the course of this episode. Right now, I want to take the opportunity, as we do with the majority of seasons, just to promote a little side project committed by a personal friend of mine, in this case being Brandon Taylor. The business is known as Taylor's Trades. Now, Brandon has a Facebook page, Instagram and Twitter all set up. And whilst there isn't an official website, you can find a website on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter that leads you to an official site that offers you a middleman service where Brandon allows and sets up a community-based company that allows you to buy, sell and trade safely all across the country. He delivers a courier service allowing you to distribute or receive goods from across the country and he offers that service delivering over £400,000 worth of goods already. He comes with over a thousand references from various different customers all having positive feedback and as I mentioned before he operates from Southampton all across the country and this particular project he does solely for the community offering you a business which allows you to buy, sell and trade completely safely without the hassle of making deliveries or receiving deliveries and going through the hassle yourself. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, be sure to head on over to Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. I'll include the links below and be sure to pop Brandon a line because I'm sure he'll be happy to hear from you. And should you wish to buy, sell or trade any particular item, I'm sure he'll want to help you along with the process to do that. So once again, that's Taylor's Trades, which you'll find the links for in the description below. Okay, guys, once again, thank you very much for listening. I hope you've got a lot out of this episode, and I hope that you're as excited for the continuation of Season 3 as we are. Thank you for tuning in. It really means the world. Be sure to take care of yourselves and each other. Have a great week, and whatever you're planning on doing today, just go out there and do the best you possibly can, and know that it's always good enough. I'm Wayne Telford and I'll see you next time.